1: Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am delighted today to welcome Professor C.T. Nguyen to the program to discuss his new book, Games, Agency as Art, published in 2020 with Oxford University Press. Professor Nguyen is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Utah. His work covers trust, echo chambers, porn, fake clarity, and all sorts of other stuff. Professor Nguyen, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. What was the inspiration for this book? There's like so
0: many, like, do you want the long story or the short story? Let's go with the long story. Okay, the long story is I uh, have been playing games for my entire life, and during graduate school, I was a food critic for the LA Times, um, which is a weird side gig to get as a philosophy graduate student. And... Um, I'm not sure if you know this, but like in mainstream analytic philosophy, like doing here are two topics you're really not supposed to do. One is definitely games. That's not a research topic. I didn't even know that was a research topic that was possible. And the other is really like philosophy of art. That's kind of like in some ways on its way out and been kind of displaced by this very logical scientific program in analytic philosophy. And so I had to make this choice about whether or not I would, be a food writer or a philosophy professor. And I kind of swore that if I did if I did philosophy, I would let myself do weird aesthetics and weird philosophy of art. Um, and so I started teaching about this stuff. And I remember reading some stuff in the philosophy of games that uh, the small literature that's evolved, well, mostly about whether games are an art form, mostly about whether video games are an art form. And I remember um, being irritated because a lot of the work mostly extended theoretical frameworks that are very well established to work on fiction and literature and film to games. And if you do that, you tend to emphasize things like the narrative features of games, the cinematics of games, the soundtracks of games, the scripts, things that they share with film. And I mean, I think that, all, that stuff is all great, but I also think it can miss out on the central feature of games. Um, And one of the interesting things is you can find books and books about the meaningfulness of games that leave out aspects like skill, choice, decision making, free agency. And this was, I mean, it struck me as like not really true of what I loved about games and not really true of what I was reading on game design forums and game designer blogs and game review, like I was having this experience where I was like, I actually think that like the academic work often is in the grips of a theory. And like the thing that's truer is this stuff that's on like internet forums about people trying to figure out like why this game is just lovely to play. And so I started working on, I started working on it. And the th- I had this, the, the moment that was like super revolutionary for me was my favorite, uh, board game designer. I'm, I'm geeky enough to have a favorite board game designer. It's Reiner Knizia, the Mozart of German board game design. Um, he has this moment in a top a game design talk where he says the most important thing in his game design toolbox is the point system because the point system sets the players' motivations, and as a game player. I was like, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense, right? You, you open up the rule book and it tells you what the points are. And you're like, okay, that's what I want, right? Like you don't formulate yourself. You don't say those words to yourself, but you do that. Um, as a philosopher who works on rationality and motivation and agency, I was like, holy shit, that's correct. And that's wild, right? A game designer just tells you what to want. And you do it. You take it on. Um, and I realized like this turned out to be really hard to talk about in the, the philosophical language I had been brought up with. Uh, and my friend Jonathan Gingrich, who's another philosopher and we started working on games and fun together, uh, he ended up putting it this way. He said, "Look, if you look at the history of philosophy, all this work about rationality and motivation was built to suit moral and political theories. And those kinds of theories prefer a really kind of linear, straight, predictable, committed agent. And what you get it with play is something weirder, something funkier, something like more bent. And, um, and he ended up saying like, look, if we can't fit stuff about games and play into like the theory we inherited, so much for the worse of that theory. That was like something missing. And so I started working on this thing that was in some sense... An attempt to give a good account of the aesthetic value of games, like as games, what made them unique. And another stage was about trying to figure out what play and the existence of play, especially as it's formalized in games, could teach us about how we function as human beings, what we can do, how we learn. Right.
1: And so who's the
0: audience you had in mind for a book like this? Right. This, was, this is a little bit... Um, so there's a bunch of possible audiences. And this is one of those things for the academic writers out there that you can you can negotiate with your um, publisher. So there's... Uh, one audience is definitely philosophers. And there you can split them into two, right? There are people in the philosophy of art, And one of the things I want to do is convince them that games are an important art form, but not one that was just annexed to fiction. Another is, I think this is addressed in some sense to all philosophers, because I think they're, and one of the things that's been surprising to me is a lot of the philosophy world has actually picked up on this stuff because some of the book makes claims, not just about games, but about our nature. Uh, One of the things I talk a lot about is I think that games reveal um, that we're much more fluid with our agency and our motivations, and you might think that we can do this this wild thing where a game tells us to care about something and we just care about it wholeheartedly. Uh, one of the things, places this ended up interesting, being interesting is that there are a lot of philosophers who have held to this view. that You can't just desire things or care about things voluntarily. And games like, serve as an interesting taste case, for, test case for that, right? Because you just open up the game and the game says, if you want to play this, care about collecting sheep and you're like okay i care about collecting sheep i'm in so there's a lot there i think for um mainstream philosophers i think uh for people uh, it's also aimed at a wide swath of humanities academics and i've been happy to see that it's being picked up in some spaces and a lot of that is i think trying to offer a really clear framework for talking about the motivational structure of games and what our motivations are in games. We'll talk about that more when we get there. And the last thing I think is I was really hoping just people that cared about games in some way would come to this book and have it be useful. And I've actually gotten a bunch of feedback that I've been really happy about. So people have told me that they're not academics, but they love games and they've never been able to explain why. And the book gives them the language to like actually say what, what they've i kind of kind of felt um and, a, and another audience I, a similar audience was for people that are game designers this is kind of a niche audience but i think it's a really important audience because games are such a massive um part of the world by the way we can talk about this later but i'm now teaching a class to game designers in the game design program at university of utah because oh, university cool. of utah is one of the world's largest game design programs um it's, it's oh, We can talk about it later. It's super interesting. But I, I also wanted to talk to game designers in a lot of ways. Like this book was me reading a ton of game design blogs and being like, you really know what you're talking about, but also you don't have this philosophy of art background. Uh, and so a lot of it's not quite. So I, I feel like a lot of it was me like absorbing these ideas and then kind of precisifying them and giving them a framework and context and being like, here, you can have it back, but I philosophize it for you. So like, you know, it's all clear and sparkly now. And I've had a lot of game designers tell me that it's really helped them articulate what they're trying to do and what their artistic goals are. Uh, Especially because I think, again, like there's this, there's this kind of theoretical capture where people working on games and people in the games culture and the games industry can get captured by more traditional notions of art. And feel like they have this onus to drag games in the direction of avant-garde art or movies or in directions that I think um, are a little bit away from the core of what's special about games. And some of the games, one of the the proudest proudest bits of feedback I've gotten is that game designers have told me, like, the book helped them stay true to what they cared about about games instead of being, like, pushed off course by this, like outside force of no to be serious. You have to be like this other thing. And so that, that's also made me really happy. So it's been, uh, I've been aiming at a broad audience and I've at least had some people outside of philosophy say that the book was interesting to them.
1: And so let's get right into it. What's a game? All right. Okay. So what's a game? Um, The, I'll give you a caveat.
0: So famously. Late Wittgenstein said, "There you can't define terms clearly." And here's my core example: game. The term "game" there's no definition for. Um, and he thought this is he thought that this was part of his argument that all terms were parts of family resemblances. There are not clear boundaries; they're just like clusters of similarity. Um, and then Bernard Suits, this philosopher that I love, the, the big inspiration for me, uh, wrote this book called *The Grasshopper*, which is an incredible book. It was kind of a lost cult classic that has slowly gained a following over the last few decades. Have you read The Grasshopper? I haven't, no. Okay. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It's clearly written, and it's an attempt to define games. I think it's actually secretly a theory about the value of games, and I actually think it's secretly a theory about the, the meaning of life, but we'll, we'll get there. So, um, Suits offers the following definition of a game. So the short version is that playing a game is voluntarily taking on unnecessary obstacles to create the activity of struggling to overcome them so i mean I, I think this is there's a more complex version that we can get into in a little bit but his basic insight is that i mean one way that he puts it is that games are made up of voluntary inefficiencies right in every game there's a target something you're trying to do like crossing the finish line getting the ball through the basketball hoop but you don't take the most efficient way there. So if you're running a marathon, there are faster ways to get to the finish line. You could take a shortcut, you could take a bicycle, you could call a lift, right? And you don't do those. Similarly, there are easier ways to get the ball through the hoop. You can get a stepladder. You don't need opponents, right? Um, Use like one of those grabby tools that you you use to get things down from the high shelf, whatever. You could do those things, but you avoid them. So a curiosity about games, thought suit was in every game we had a goal and then we took on restrictions that kept us from ma- getting that goal efficiently which indicates to him that the simple goal getting the ball through the hoop is not what we really care about we care about achieving that within a certain set of constraints so one of the things he noticed is that like what it is to make a basket is constitutively related to to the restrictions. So does that make sense? So if you use a stepladder, you got the ball through the hoop, but you didn't make a basket, right? To make a basket, you have to do it inside certain constraints. Um, You may get to a certain block, but you didn't cross the finish line, right? Unless you running in a certain way. So the thing that suits notes finds is that um, what a game is, is an activity it's kind of constructed and made out of constraints. It's not even the same activity if you don't do, if you don't get involved with those constraints. So I think that's an incredible definition. Um, I don't think it actually captures every natural language term way we use games. Um, I don't think it, there's a actually the first paper I wrote in this space was saying, I don't think it captures make believe games, right? Like children just like. Um, So I don't think it captures the full richness of the natural language term, but it clearly sets a category that's very recognizable. And what I care about is analyzing that category. So the analysis I'm giving in this book is not one that applies to everything that someone might naturally call a game. It's all the things that fit Suits' definition. I think one of the things that makes Suits' definition really um, useful is it really exposes, for me, the motivational structure of games. So the the kind of core analysis for my book is that Suits' analysis shows that there are two different motivational structures for playing a game. So one is achievement play, uh, which is playing a game because you care about winning. And the other one, the one I really care about, the one that I think Suits really rises to the surface, Mm -hmm. I want to call striving play. And striving play is taking on an interest in winning temporarily for the sake of the struggle. So in achievement play, you actually care about winning. In striving play, you get you kind of temporarily get yourself to care about winning, but what you really care is being in the struggle itself. Um and I think there are ways to expose this. So it's it's not that the, the achievement player is intense and serious and the striving player isn't. Because you can the, the struggle you care about could be the intense one of going hard for the win. But I think you can see this in a few places. So um, For example, when we play party games like charades, in order to have fun, you have to try to win, but you're playing to have fun. You don't actually, in a galactic sense, care about winning. You can tell kind of by how weird it would be if we had a party and we played charades and I was like, let's play charades. That seems like fun. And afterwards, I was like, fuck, I lost. Wasted evening. What a waste of time. Right? And I think we think, no, right? We don't care if we won or lost in the end because what we cared about there was fun. And that reveals that in that case, we're striving players. And I think there's some other interesting examples. So um, one, of the most, one of the ones I find the most striking is so um, how we manipulate our skill level in the long run. So for example, my wife and I play a lot of board games together. Um, and sometimes we find a game that we are perfectly balanced in and equal at, and it's delicious. Uh, And then when we we, we play each other, we try as hard as we can to win. That's how you have fun. But sometimes at night, I will find a strategy guide for the game, which my wife will never read. And I know if I read the strategy guide, I'll just win. So if I'm an achievement player, there's only one logical thing to do, which is read the strategy guide. But I don't, right? Because I think that'll make things boring. I think that reveals that I'm a striving player. Even though I'm trying hard to win in the moment, I am not. I don't actually galactically care about winning. That reveals that. Does this make sense? That like um, my interest in winning is merely an instrument for my absorption in the struggle. Um, so uh, another way to put this is: in ordinary life, we take the means for the sake of the ends, but in striving play, we take the ends for the sake of the means. If that makes sense, right? I I'm aiming at. Top of the rock, I'm trying to climb the rock, I'm a climber, the rock, just because I find so delightful the act of, you know, struggling and balancing and finding my way. And so this suggests a category, and this is not all games, but the category I'm most interested in. So that is aesthetic striving games, games that we play because of aesthetic qualities we find in the struggle. Because climbs make us beautiful or chess it makes us interesting or twister makes us like delightfully clumsy right and so out of the mess of games the thing i'm most interested in philosophically is the category of striving play in games and then in particular i'm interested in games built for the aesthetic qualities of the struggle and that's not all games but that's i think a hell of a lot of them and i think like Many video games, role-playing games, board games played for delight are usually played for the sake of aesthetic striving.
1: Yeah, where does cheating in professional chess come in? Oh, my God. Yeah, Suits had an interesting view about this.
0: So Suits thought if you cheated, you weren't really playing the game. I, I So I really like this account. So what it is to play the game and to win the game is to achieve that goal inside the constraints so if you do it outside those constraints you haven't even played the game and you definitely haven't won the game you may be doing it because the appearance of winning is attached to certain social goods right like a poker cheat is doing it because if people think they won then they get money but i think suits thinks a lot of the times we're making a mistake right people think you're not I think his idea is you're not different. You're not making, you're not seeing the conceptual difference between passing the ball through the hoop and making a basket, right? So you think the goal, you think the value is in just getting the ball through the hoop in any way you can, but that's not. So you kind of, I mean, this might sound weird, but I think he thinks that some cheats are making a metaphysical mistake. They don't understand the metaphysics of game goals. Does that make sense? I mean, hopefully that isn't too much of a stretch. Um, and he thinks, yeah, like, you you don't understand what's actually valuable here because you don't understand that in games, the thing that's valuable is
1: achievement via a certain set of constraints. So maybe now we can get on to the second word that appears in the book title, which is agency. Right. Um,
0: so there's a lot to say about agency. So I, I realized after I wrote the book that there's um, – that a lot of people use the word in different fields, use the word agency in really different ways. So in I think philosophy uses it in a kind of old school way. So an agent is just something that takes actions for reasons. So a literary agent or a your legal agent acts in your name for reasons. Google is a search agent. Um, and in philosophy, at least, the term is often used when you don't care about whether the thing has free will or not, right? When you're assessing how Google search works as an agent, you're like, I don't care if it has free will. I just want to know the kinds of reasons it's responding to and the kinds of decisions it's making. So for me, the interesting thing about games. So here's a way, here's a way into, um, here's a way into thinking about, uh, here's a way into thinking about what's going on with games Ask the question: What's the artistic medium of games? So you know, it's oil painting is so. One, of in the philosophers' art, I like one of the things they point out is a medium is not just like physical stuff, but physical stuff used with certain technique inside a certain social context, right? So oil paint is you know you're you're applying oil paint to a canvas with a brush using brush strokes, right? That's that's one form of oil painting. Um, and I think a lot of people wanted to say that, like, they concentrated on video games. And they said the medium is it's like graphics, right? Graphics and sound and a virtual environment. But I was really interested in video games as just a sense of something, part of something larger. Like, that, I wanted an account that could include video games and computer games, sorry, video games and card games and board games and sports and everything. And Suits, in some sense, gives us a really clear beginning to get inroads on this like in some sense what games are made up of is obstacles right but but obstacles aren't really obstacles unless you're trying to get past them and this is the point where Reiner Knitia's comment that thought that points are the heart of the game because they tell you what to want right that's where that collides with all this thinking about obstacles And I think one of the core things a game designer is doing is they're not just creating a world, they're telling you who to be, they're setting your goal. And a lot of the kind of sculpted activity that arises from games arises from a very specific alignment of goals, environment, and abilities, right? So one of the things we do, I teach a game design class in the University of Utah uh, game design program with a game designer, uh, Jose Zagal. Uh, who's faculty in the game design program and one of his students who have taken his design classes the exercise they always talk about is he gives you one rule set and you play it and you feel the effect and then you just change the goal a little bit and nothing else and you see what happens and then everything changes about the game right um one of the uh I'm I'm re- I'm really interested in this game called Imperial. Imperial is a board game. Have you played Imperial? I haven't. No, I read about it for the first time in the book. It's the most deliciously nasty game. So it looks like Risk. There are countries, there are armies, the countries build armies, they march and they attack each other. And if it were a game like Risk, then the goal would be control a country and beat all the other countries militarily. But it's not. In uh Imperial, you play shadowy investors who are changing stocks in the countries and manipulating World War One for profit. And that completely changes how the game is played, right? You're not interested in the victory of a country. You often like will cash out of a country or like, um, one of the most evil tactics possible in this amazingly cynical game is uh, staging a fake war between two countries you control to kill all your troops before you have to pay them because that would drain your treasury. It's just like, right? But that change in goal completely changes the structure of the game. And it changes the kind of strategies you take. A lot of the strategies involve incentive manipulation, right? Like if I control England and you control most mostly Germany and you're about to attack, Germany's about to attack England, one response I could have is just to let the Germany player get a lot of cheap stock in England. Now we're co-invested, right? So, so the way for me to sum up all the stuff that the game designer sets, the motivations, the abilities and the obstacles is to say that game design happens in the medium of agency itself. It happens in the medium of telling you what your reasons are, what your abilities are, and then putting you in an environment where those will be tested in a particular way. I think that's what makes games incredibly unique. Um, One of the first thoughts I had way early in this process was seeing all the stuff compare games to. A fiction and saying that they were art because they're fictional and I started thinking you know what if games are an art version of anything they're like they're the art version of like urban design or government right like cities are architected choice spaces that manipulate the free flow of agency right and that's I think what games are and are really. Except they, you get one more tool the game designer the sorry the city designer can set up constraints and direct traffic and create choice spaces but they can't tell the inhabitants what to care about. And the game designer gets that one extra thing. They're like, oh yeah, and I can just tell you what to care about and you'll all care about it. And that lets them have, I think, more artistic control, right? It's a more artificial, more plastic medium where they get control over this extra thing. And so they can sculpt action and interaction with incredible fineness by manipulating features of agency.
1: And so then what's art? Oh my God.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm going to answer this without actually telling you what art is. I think, by the way, I'm writing in, uh, my friend Nick Riggle and I are writing a new introduction to philosophy of art. And our main joke is we're not going to define art at all until the last page. Cause I don't think actually anything turns on it. Um, uh, i've been teaching philosophy of art for a long time and the way, the most it turns out that to me the most boring topic is what's the definition of art i think when people ask that question what they're, asked really ask, what they're actually asking is is this thing valuable is this thing worth spending my time and attention on could it have value something similar to the value of jazz or proust right um so both of which are very valuable yeah both of which are deeply valuable so I, I'll give you a few answers to this. I, I Here's my backwards answer that some people hate. If it makes sense to talk about an artistic medium, then it's an art form. And here's the medium, right? Here's the thing that people are manipulating for aesthetic effect. There, that's, that's all I care about. But I think there's a larger issue at stake here. And that's, so to call something art um, is to give it, for me, the most important thing about calling something art is to give it a certain social weight and say that it's worth spending time on and worth spending attention on. Uh, Elizabeth uh, uh a philosopher of art, has this great paper about how when we're arguing about what art is, we're really pragmatically setting what we give that praise term to. And if you get that praise term, you get all kinds of social effects, right? NEA funding. It's not weird to teach it in, I mean, I think the practical effect of calling something art is a high school teacher could teach a game in high school and be like, no, this is okay, this is art, right? That's, it is a worthy thing for us to devote cultural time and attention to. So for me, it's really a question of worth and especially um, worth that might be similar to the other kinds of worth you attach. So uh, you, uh, that we attach to other more traditionally recognized forms of art. Um, so. For me, there's a lot of easy ways to answer that question then, right? So I can give you a practical answer and a kind of a pure answer. The pure answer is it gives you aesthetic experiences. You have experiences of beauty. You have experiences of thrill. You have experiences of comedy. You have experiences of elegance, right? That's, there's, there are things that people made that support experiences of beauty on purpose. What the fuck more do you want from me? Um, The... uh, Another answer you can say is that they're a medium for communicating something really rich and subtle. And I think here it's important to say that I think different mediums are, it's not that they're constrained to, but they're really good at communicating different kinds of things. Like uh, Martha Nussbaum famously argued that narratives are really good at communicating emotional perspectives and that they're a way to contain that. And one of my suggestions in this book is that games are a really good medium for communicating forms of agency that you can learn different mindsets and practical styles from a game um chess taught me how to be an analytic philosopher right different games give like i played imperial and i i learned how to be a completely shitty machiavellian which is a totally useful mindset to have if you're on a committee um with people trying to defund the humanities in favor of the business school and STEM. And that's when I'm like, okay, let me load up my Imperial mindset. I got this. Right. Um, So you have both an intrinsic aesthetic value and this like special communicative value. And I think even though the thing that it's communicating is slightly different, the fact that it's a way to convey something subtle and weird and rich, that it's hard to convey in like direct explicit language, that's, that's what puts it in the realm of art. But I think there's a big churn here for me, which is I think games as an art form are very distinctive mm-hmm. because the place where the kind of aesthetic equality arises is different. So in, in the book, one of the things I distinguish is, between is I think two metaphysically different kinds of art. So one, a more traditionally recognizable kind, I want to call object art. And games, I think, are a clear example of a large category I want to call process art. So the difference is, that um in object art I think the artist makes a thing and then the audience appreciates that thing and the aesthetic qualities arise in that thing, right? The artist makes a painting, a novel, a performance, and then it's the jazz solo that's wild and heartrending, right? It's the movie that's funny. In games the artist makes a thing and then the audience interacts with the thing and then the aesthetic qualities arise in the audience's action, right? It's the climber that's elegant. It is the player of Octodad, who's just this comic, ridiculous video game, who the player and their avatar, whose motions are like clumsy and comically weird, right? It's It's the chess player's mind that does the elegant, insightful thing. And so I think that kind of, Two step process where the aesthetic properties are one step further removed from the stable object makes games different. But I think there's lots of other things that are in this category. So my suspicion is that category is uh, really broad and under respected. So I think so. I have another paper called "The Arts of Action" that I wrote after this book where I developed a lot of this, uh, a lot of alternate alternatives. So I think like improvised social dances, like improv tango, is a, is one of these things, right? Um, a lot of I think role-playing games are in this obviously in this category I think cooking is in this category one of the places that I got one of the places that I got into thinking about this from outside of games was starting to wonder why cookbooks were always reviewed for the quality of the dishes but not the quality of the cooking process because some of them had really elegant lovely cooking processes and some had these like especially ones that, where they took a process from like a big professional kitchen and then like shrunk it down for a single person, but didn't quite do it right. So now you have to do like five things simultaneously and it's fucking awful, right? So I think a lot of things out there are these sculpted processes. Um, and when you are under the onus of finding the aesthetic quality in the stable object, that, that's when you revert to things like, oh, what's the script? What are the graphics like in the game? And those are good. But I think if you pay attention to the language of kind of in the wild, game designers and game players and reviewers talking, most of what the qual- what of the emphasis is on is the kinds of actions that get called out of the player and their quality. And so I think that's 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 the center, and it's easy to uh, miss it if you have a more traditional uh, if you're if you're imposing an object art paradigm. There are lots of there are a lot of questions about why. One quick answer I've started to think about is whether uh, the existence of the art market explains a lot of this, right? Like, there's all this interest Jennifer Lena is, is this great uh, art sociologist. She has all this stuff about how the art market tends to go out and find complex processes and then find a way to reduce them to like a physical object that can be moved from museum to shop, to right? Um, and I think until very recently, it was really hard to make a lot of money with a stable game and technology shifted a bit. But I think the older kind of kinds of technologies we had and distribution systems we had made uh, the, made the art market much more interested in things like paintings than say improvised dance groups.
1: But you talk about something that I think brings all of this together, which is this concept of framing. Could you talk about the importance of framing here?
0: Framing comes up to me for a very specific way and a very specific use. And it happens in two debates I have in the book with other people in this space. So Yuriko Sato is this wonderful aestheticist who um, works in a field that she dubbed everyday aesthetics. So she's interested in how there are these aesthetic qualities in everyday life um, who where things like, uh, she thinks there's an aesthetic quality to, folding laundry. There's an aesthetic quality to housework. There's an aesthetic quality to a sneeze. There's an aesthetic quality to walking around the sidewalk. And we tend to ignore them and pay attention to kind of aesthetic qualities that are in official art. She thinks the big difference between official art and everyday aesthetics is that official art has a frame and everyday art does not. The frame in art tells you what to look at and tells you how to look at it. And in every, in the everyday world, it's not like that. So um, this is this is a thought that other philosophers of art have written about a lot. Sherry Urban has a, really, a bunch of really good stuff about this. Um, and one of their general thoughts is there are actually rules for interacting with art and they're so obvious that we miss them. So here's, an, here's one that a lot of people use. When you're looking at a painting, I mean, the idea comes from you're supposed to look at what's in the frame, but there's also all kinds of other stuff. We know that you're supposed to look at it with your eyes and not smell it. The smell isn't on. It's not part of it. You're not supposed to lick it. You're not supposed to look at the back, right? If if you lick the back of a canvas and then reviewed that painting, we'd be like, you, you didn't do the thing, right? Or imagine if you reviewed a movie strictly based on the art on the DVD, right so it's really clear that so interestingly a lot of my students rebel against this and i'm like you know imagine imagine like imagine someone review you met you're a perfume maker and you make a perfume for like 10 years and someone reviews it by drinking and being like this tastes fucking awful right so so that's the that's what i'm calling the frame this I, it's a normative frame, and I think a lot, Sherry Urban convinced me that a lot of it's socially held. We, we know things about how we're supposed to interact with art, and you can't really interact with the object, this kind of constructed ob, social object, unless you know those rules. Um, so there are a few people that have pushed back on this in a few ways. So you know, Yuriko Sato claimed that games were an everyday aesthetic object because you could enjoy anything about them. And I think, I think she's wrong, um, and I think it's pretty straightforward. Like, if you review a game based on having not played half the rules, or if you review a video game and you never got past the character creation screen, right? You haven't interacted with the object. There are there are the kinds of objects that are social and for which there are norms for getting into contact with it. That um, that we use in talking about who gets to pronounce a judgment. Right? You, um, you don't get to pronounce a judgment about a game if you have read half the rule book and never played it. Right? So that's so that's that's the idea of the normative frame. And I think it's an interesting one because framed objects have a particular value. So you might be like, why do we do this at all? I think the more the more framing there is, the less freedom you have, but the more possibility you have for communication, because it kind of stabilizes the experience. Right? Um, we know how people are going to interact with these things. And I think that's really important. So this is, there's another fight I have in the book with another, with another, with a game scholar named Miguel Sicart, who is, who has some wonderful stuff about points that we can talk about later. But here's this claim in this book um, of his on play, that Games are the opposite of play because play is totally free form and games just kill that. And all it is is this like horrible impulse that crushes pure free play. And my response is there's also I mean, the way to think about it is just think of them as an art form and all art forms have these normative frames. And that's what makes it possible to kind of construct a stable experience and pass it to somebody else. Right. Like you couldn't have novels as a practice without the practice read the words in order. And for games, it's like, follow the rules, care about what the game tells you to care about. Those are, those are the basic norms by which we socially frame the gaming experience. And that's that has a It's not pure free play, but it has a value that pure fl- free play doesn't, which is this stable,
1: constructed action experience that we can pass around. Could you get into maybe the ethical benefits of games?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, so... So I think one there's a quick one thing to talk about is what you get from entering these alternate point systems, and um, I think one thing you can get is in some ways I've, I've already talked about this a bit. Like what you get is this ability to experience alternate forms of agency. And I think like if you if you um, if you think that. Exposure to wider mental sets and styles will increase your understanding of the world and, and sometimes increase your freedom because you have a greater inventory to move around in. Then I think that's going to be really important. I think another thing, and this, is, this ties in deeply with my worries about games, is that I mean, I'm very worried about the existence of point systems and the use of game-like design systems outside in the world, like pervasive, intrusive point systems. And I think games can, real games, not gamified work or gamified education, which I find very worrisome. What real games can encourage us to do is to reflect on the value of point systems. Because when you have an aesthetic relationship with games, this is what you're doing. You're stepping into a game you're absorbing yourself in a point system, you're doing it for a while, and then you're stepping back and you're asking yourself from outside that point system from a vantage point that's not confined by that point system, whether that activity was worthwhile. And you're doing it in very kind of rich, sensitive, in terms, in aesthetic terms. Was that beautiful? Was that fun? Was that interesting? Was that satisfying? Was that rich? Um, And I think that kind of distance on point systems is a really valuable
1: um, habit. And can you maybe get more into the ethical dangers of games? So I'm really worried about, uh,
0: so there's <laughs> there's a line in the book um, that my game students love. Uh, so people have worried for a long time about whether you might pick up violent habits from games. And I think there's actually a lot of empirical evidence that that typically doesn't happen because we know that it's fictional. Like for the same reason that you watch The Sopranos and don't become like, a mafia right? <laughs> like, people don't pick up deadly habits from games um but i think the thing that i'm worried about is that people might pick up from games an interest in having values in the world be clear and quantified and that they might walk them out into the world looking for that so the line from my book is like i'm not worried about games making serial killers i'm worried about them making wall street bankers um and the 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 worry I have can be put something like this. I think one of the great pleasures of games is that it makes your values clear, right? That life is like this confusing, intense muddle. And then in games, you you get to know exactly what you're doing. And you, know, you get to know exactly how well you're doing. I think the big danger is exporting that expectation. Like, hoping, expecting, and being drawn to systems of the world that are like, no, here's objectively how you succeed. You don't have to worry about it. I'll tell you how well you're done. And my my worry is that that really undercuts our freedom. So there's this weird scent in which I think the point systems of games, I mean, one way to put it is every artistic medium has a potency, And it's not that it's all all good or all bad, but we should be aware of where that potency is. So Martha Nussbaum said the potency of narrative is really in their ability to give you emotional perspectives. And that unlocks the key to like the moral richness of narrative that you can explore different perspectives. But that's also why narratives work well for like, you know, fascist propaganda because they play with emotions. So same thing I worry about with games. Games play with agency. How can that be amazing? You can learn all kinds of different kinds of agency and be free. How can that be terrible? You can be suckered into one form of agency and stuck in it.
1: Yeah. Touching on all these different kinds of agencies, uh, you mentioned that chess helped you become an analytic philosopher. Can you talk a little bit more about that? (laughs) Analytic philosophers are assholes and chess
0: teaches you to be a logical asshole. I mean, really like the, the mindset that you need to function as an analytic philosopher is to look for precisely imagine ahead of time, precisely what very careful attack someone might make and pre-prepare for all those attacks and look attacks and look ahead. Like if I say this, they'll say that, but then I can say this, but then they'll say that. And that's, that's the mindset of chess. That's not a mindset I naturally had, but I learned from chess and I'm not, not drawn to analytic philosophy because I get to do that, but I've learned its value and chess taught me like the mindset of kind of tight, precise, logical look ahead.
1: And you said playing chess, uh, you write this in the book, playing chess during graduate school helped you more than just reading analytic philosophy on its own. Yeah, because I mean, I think there's something about the tightness
0: of the agential form. Like, I mean, here's here's another. So I was really clumsy and I didn't really occupy my body well. I was a very sedentary youth. And just someone telling you, like, pay attention to your body. That doesn't really help. But when I started rock climbing, rock climbing has this very binary feedback, right? If you pay attention carefully to your body, you will get up the rock. If your attention lapses and you don't pay attention exactly to where your feet and your hips are, you fall. And so the clarity of the, the wind system there offers like this very useful feedback. And I think like it helps one tune in. I think there's something similar about chess. Like, oh, it's very clear when you lose in chess, right? And so... Insofar as that loss comes from having failed to look ahead, it amplifies that particular
1: form of failure. And that that can be a really useful learning tool. And then this point on gamification that, I mean, you touched on this when I asked you about the dangers of, of... Uh, games but you really stress this point of gamification in the book as being problematic because of course it leads to value capture and all sorts right. of other things can you maybe give some examples of how gamification is happening in the world and right. where you oppose that
0: yeah so in the book I, I introduced this concept that i'm currently calling value capture and this is basically everything i've been thinking about so i have way more to say about it than the book like i think i uh, Like I finished writing the book like three years ago, and I've just been researching the value capture stuff since then. So value capture for me is any case where you have kind of rich, subtle, inchoate values, and then the world feeds you simplified, typically quantified versions, and you just start caring about those instead. So examples, shifting from caring about education, wisdom, understanding, to caring about your grades. Shifting from caring about communication connection on Twitter to caring about your likes and retweets. Shifting from caring about what you research and its interestingness to caring about your citation rates, like the impact factors of the journals you're in, or like the rankings of your colleges. So I think like in many cases, a capture process occurs where you suddenly transition or like weight loss and fitness, I think is a big one, right? There are all kinds of things you care about with fitness and physical movement, but for a lot of people, it becomes centered around weight loss or upping your VO2 max for people in CrossFit, right? So um, so my worry is that in these cases, you get a game-like benefit, you get clear values, you get to know exactly where you're sand, but the cost is you have to internalize an external value system. So I've been putting it in the new stuff is that with value capture, you're outsourcing your values. You're letting Facebook or Fitbit set what you care about. And I find that deeply alarming. The difference in games is that games are closed-ended. You take on a point system for a while, then you step back from it. It's not pervasive. You can shift between games. You can choose the game you like. Um, but a lot of these point systems are you can't sh- pick something else besides grades. Like right? Grades are this incredibly pervasive system, and they press on you. Um, and if you adopt them and internalize them, you, have, you don't have the ability to, you, you can't be like, well, that game was boring. Let's try a different one, right? That's, that's the world offering you a single game that kind of is miserable and narrows your values in an enduring way from this much richer value set. so that, I find that very worrisome.
1: This book is spectacular. It's completely transformed how I think about agency. It's completely transformed. I have a terrible chess addiction. It's completely transformed how I think about chess. Well, how's it transformed it? I'm interested. Well, you know, the thing about it is when I was playing chess before, I just thought I was doing something. You know, it's kind of like brain jogging to distract myself from the other things that I need to do. But recently when I've been playing chess, I've really been thinking about what is it doing to the way I'm thinking outside of the game, Uh, which before I had no uh, grasp on or I wasn't meditating on to any capacity. You know, I don't often read analytic philosophy, but I have read a number of analytic philosophy books, and I can say by far that this is the most fun analytic (laughs) philosophy book I've ever read. Thank you.
0: There was an earlier draft of this. It was less fun because I was too anxious about sounding philosophy. And I was like, if I write a book about games and play that's not fun, then I have failed at life. And <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, there's so and, and you know, unfortunately, of course, we're coming towards the end of we're coming towards the end of the interview, but there's so much that we didn't get to that's so rich in this book. And you use such good examples and you draw from of course you've done it in this interview, you draw from so many different types of games, from basketball, from rock climbing, from chess, from uh, playing board games with your wife and your friends, from free play, from all sorts of things. There is a tradition on the New Books Network that I always like to uphold, which is to end the interview by asking what you are working on now. I right. So I've been working on the value capture stuff, uh, and that's led me
0: to reading a bunch of stuff I hadn't read at the time of the book from the sociology and anthropology of bureaucracy um, and... Uh, the stuff I've been working on right now in particular has been about the point systems of metrics. Um, and lately what I've been starting to get to as I've been working on this value capture project more is this worry that metrics are both necessary for institutions and collective work and corrosive to individuals. And that's just it. That's, that's the end of the story. Like we we have this horrific tension. So, like, so a version of this, I have a paper... Um, that just came out called transparency is surveillance. Um, and it's about metrics for transparency to help individuals and institutions be transparent to the public and be held accountable. And one of the core thoughts for that is that every public facing transparent metric can't be sensitive to all the concerns of people that are in the situation and experts. So here's a simple way to put the argument. Um, Experts have access and act for reasons that non-experts don't. Every public transparency metric is asking experts to rule themselves by something that is comprehensible to the public and and essentially thereby cuts out expert reasoning from their core target. So transparency undermines expertise. So I got this... I'm developing this thought. There was just a few lines from this philosopher, O'Naro O'Neill, where she says people think transparency and trust go together, but actually they come apart because transparency asks experts to either fake their reasons, or I think change their reasons. Um, you get a similar problem if you uh, believe in something like standpoint epistemology. So if you think that oppressed or marginalized groups have access to special sen- have sensitivity to considerations that aren't available to everyone, And then you take a group, like, say, an LGBTQ support group, and you make it transparent to the public, then you are undercutting that special sensitivity. So you get this problem where I think, I mean, one way to put it is I think that trust in other people and experts is in tension with the demands of publicity. I find it really interesting because as like a left. A lefty progressive. I think one of the things I've uncovered is I believe it you're brought up believing in two things. One is we should always be transparent to the public, and two is standpoint epistemology, marginalized group have special understanding of their situations. And I think I realize those are intention, right? Those are in this deep conflict. And the the kind of catchiness of simple point systems and metrics often means that experts can get sucked into chasing these very simplified, unnuanced targets because of this game-like effect. So I'm, I'm, I'm really worried that there's this deep tension between kind of large-scale public-facing life, which is ruled by these very information-narrowed um, metrics, and individual or small-scale communal life, which is ruled by special understandings, expert understandings, or individual sensitivities. But then the game stuff gives you this suction pressure where at the small scale, you're really tempted. Just stop caring about your own shit and just care about the points that the institution gives you. Because then all the clarity of playing a game comes to you. So a lot a lot of the stuff I've been writing has been on this. The best feedback I got about this paper was I got an email from a dean who was, I think, um, also an English professor. And she said she'd read a lot of philosophy and none of it, none, the Schopenhauer, the Kierkegaard, none of that had ever disturbed her. But this paper gave her profound existential nausea about <laughs> what she was doing with her life. And I was like, <laughs> philosopher job complete. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, when you get your next book published, I'd love to have you back on the show. Awesome. Thank you. The book is Games, published in 2020 with Oxford University Press. Professor C. T. Nguyen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.